1: Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Hope that you're having a great day. All right. George Barna. Aubrey, you hear that name. Uh, You've been a Christian long enough to know who George Barna is. Tell people who George Barna is.
2: George Barna is the father of surveys. (laughs) That's true. There you go. There's probably a better way to say it, but George Barna does all the surveys, especially for churches, for church leaders. He's sort of the Christian survey guru.
1: The guy. That's a good way to put it. He is the father of surveys. (laughs) And so he came out actually with a study the other day that shares four ways Christian parents can combat media's influence in children's lives, which I thought was really important. We talk hmm. about this all the time. Well, I guess I'll put it on you. Why is not only shaking our fists at media, social media and, and the what it's having with our kids, but but kind of going beyond that with strategy, why is that so important right now as a parent?
2: Oh, I I mean I I can only speak like personally and anecdotally to this, but I need a strategy because I don't know what to do. And I <laughs> see how social media is, or not even for my kids' social media, but like screen time, right? Video game time. Yeah, it is. And in one sense, that's their own version of social media for my kids' age right now because they are with friends playing games or on Discord talking with. I it overwhelms me. Kevin and I see that in a lot of ways, it's sucking away their creativity, their energy, Mm. their joy. And yet sometimes I honestly feel like, I don't know what to do about it. That's and right. so I think a strategy is just like, get, yes, give me some action, some tangible handholds so I know how to move forward and parent my kids well. Help me parent my kids is what I'm saying, <laughs>
1: Somebody help me parent my kids. <laughs> Barna wrote this, exactly what you're saying. He said, the most significant influence on the development of a worldview in America today is what we absorb from the media. And if that's the case, then that says to me as a parent or a grandparent, or somebody who cares about the development of the worldview of children that I've got to pay attention to what media is investing in those Mm. children's minds and their hearts. So he's basically saying, once we get to the uh, realization that, you know what, in many ways, media, I think you're right. That's social media, that's television movies, that's video games, that's all of it. I think it all falls under this umbrella, uh, that it's, it's not just influencing our our kids' worldview and parenthetically our own worldviews, right? But it's forming it's it's forming yeah, our worldviews yeah, and yeah. Uh, especially if we don't have some strategy and some things to combat that. And so I, I think once we get to that premise, Barna is going to give us. He does this. He's got to have pastor. He's got to be a pastor deep in his heart because he then lists not just four things, Aubrey, but he lists. Four things that start with the letter M.
2: <laughs> Look at that. Maybe he's the pastor of surveys, not the father of surveys, he's, but the pastor of surveys. Okay, so is, what is what does he say?
1: He is George Barna, Reverend Survey. There okay. we go. That's it. So the first one, let's walk through all four of these because I love a good list. And then you just – uh With each one, let's discuss. He says the first uh, advice he gives to parents is to, quote, monitor – there's your first M – what these kids are being exposed to because our research shows that most parents are happy to buy their children every device the child Mm. wants. And then they leave the kids up to determine what they're going to take in through all those devices. They don't even know what their kids are being exposed to. So, Mm. Aubrey, the first M is monitor. Uh, how difficult is that to do? I find that to be really difficult, actually.
2: I find that to be so difficult. And and I'll be frank. It's lazy parenting for me. I'm only speaking mm-hmm. for myself. But part of it is I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys go downstairs. You know, you can have your two hours of screen time in the basement now. And yes. then they're just in the basement doing their screen time. I don't know what they're doing. I don't I'm yeah. upstairs doing my own thing. And I kind of enjoy that time. And so it is it's totally lazy parenting. Now, they know rules we've set. But this is me assuming they're obeying the rules. We we do things like screen checks with our kids, where we surprise them, like, "All right, everybody, bring up your computers, bring up your iPads, bring up your phones." Like, I mean, they don't all have all those devices, but right, right, right. Um, but still, this is hard because it requires work and effort and time and energy. And I, I mean, I'm guilty of this. I don't do it.
1: That's right. It's hard. It, it, I think you you put your finger right on it. Oftentimes, we give our kids, uh phones, watch TV, watch. I remember feeling sometimes like when I would be watching my children when they were really young, like they're older now. But when my kids were really young, uh, it was a running joke. But you could almost treat like the Disney Channel as a uh, as like a babysitter. Oh,
2: no, we would (laughs) joke about that. We'd be like, yeah, my Mickey Mouse is babysitting our kids right now or whatever. Yeah, totally. It's like it's such lazy parenting, but I'm guilty of it.
1: Absolutely. Mama needs her. He needs her screen time, too. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Uh, Number two. Oh, wait, I think I just skipped number one. Uh, Number two is that parents should minimize screen time because our research also shows that in America, the biggest addiction in our country is to the media. We spend more time literally absorbing messages from media than anything else we do except sleep. So not eliminating, (laughs) Aubrey, but minimizing. How do you guys do that?
2: So we allow our kids to have a certain amount a day. They have to have their homework done, rooms clean, and then before bed they can have, you know, like an hour or two. They're not allowed to have screen time on Sundays at all. Oh. But even that feels like it's probably too much. Like I have a friend who doesn't allow her kids any screen time at all throughout the week. But then Saturdays and Sundays, they can have it so they can have it only on the weekends. Okay. so that's just what we've chosen. That's what we've stuck to. It feels in my mind justifiable since we don't do anything on Sundays. But I don't know, Brian, that's probably still too much. What do you guys do?
1: I, I wish I had a really good answer because it's getting harder. My kids are older than yeah. yours. Yeah. And and so you start wanting to loosen the strings a little bit, especially my oldest who is, you know, going on 18 here. But then you're like, man, like there's got to be some training here as to uh what uh, what minimization looks like. But here's mm. the hard part. Let me just be really frank. If I, I know that if I'm going to minimize my kids' screen time. That's unfair without me minimizing my own. (laughs) A
2: hundred percent, because it it does sort of require you then going, so come upstairs and let's all play a family game together or let's all work on a craft together or let's all go outside and blah, 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 blah. And those are fun, amazing things to do with your family. But sometimes as parents, let's be honest, we don't have the time or the energy or the wherewithal for that.
1: That's right. Number three here is mediate. Barna says to parents, serve as the mediator between what the media is trying to get you to believe and what we as followers of Jesus believe based on what scriptures teach. This is where it gets difficult, Aubrey, too, because this isn't just about setting a timer or this, but it's actually helping them process uh, scripturally through Mm, gospel lenses what it is they're seeing. so good. But what becomes difficult about that is I need to know more about what they're seeing. Yeah. And so it all does play into, what do you think about mediate.
2: I mean, I, I feel like that goes back. You have to be monitoring in order to mediate, right? But I, I will say, I mean, I'm not going to dive into this too much. One of our children got some really hard messages through a media outlet. Mm. And um, we have really had to talk through that with him, show him what the word says instead of what this media outlet was saying, pray for him, talk with him. I mean, there was some emotion involved. Like It became a thing. That you wouldn't expect, but the media does tap into our kids' emotions. And so I think mm-hmm. as parents, we have to be very, very mindful of their little precious hearts and the things that are getting in. And so I think that mediate piece is really important. But of course, this goes back to that requires Time. moderation and minimization. That's right. right?
1: That's right. Can you get, if you haven't read ahead, have you read ahead? Can you guess the fourth M?
2: Um, I have not read ahead. And so I feel a little bit guilty that I don't know it mediate and mm, no i don't know tell me
1: <laughs> it's mama needs a green time <laughs>
2: uh,
1: the fourth m is moralize
2: Ah, uh, wow uh, interesting he, he
1: says in other words helping our kids to understand the difference between right and wrong he predicted that if parents simply did that in the lives of their kids it would revolutionize america today so again i think the um The overarching theme of these four. And Barna does a great job with these about how to deal with media. The overarching theme is uh be be present, be Mm. active. Be active. Be Be a parent.
2: Is that what it's saying? Be parent.
1: (laughs) Be proactive. But man, does it take time? And sometimes it it can be hard. So a great article there. Uh we'd encourage you to go check it out and let us know what you think. Well, coming up next, Dr. Rob Dixon. Uh, He is uh, part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. He wrote a new book called Together in Ministry, Women and Men in Flourishing Partnerships. We're going to talk to him about that book next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to be joined uh, all the way from Fresno, California by Dr. Rob Dixon. Rob is Associate Regional Ministry Director with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, He is also the author of a new book that we are excited to talk to him about called Together in Ministry, Women and Men in Flourishing Partnerships. Rob, how are you doing today, man? Thanks for joining us.
3: Good. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, it's absolutely
1: our pleasure. Hey, before we dive into the book, which again looks great, uh, before we dive into the book, could you just introduce yourself a little bit more
3: so our people can get to know you? Yeah, sure. So I live in Fresno, California. I've been on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. That's college ministry for mm-hmm. 25 years awesome. and enjoy very much the, um, the wonder of helping college students figure out their faith and, and their mm-hmm. relationship with Jesus. And that hasn't gone away for 25 years. Along the way, I've done a a bunch of study and research and then practice around women and men working together in ministry. And so that's that practice, as well as the academic study has all uh, flowed together into the book. Interesting.
2: Oh, I'm so excited about this topic. My husband and I planted a church together about six years ago. So this is like right up my alley. So I'm so (laughs) glad that you're with us, Rob. Yeah. Um, One of the things I know you write about is um, what it is to have a shared theological conviction of gender equality. And so I want you to just go there because that's a uh, rare thing in the evangelical church these days. So talk to us about what you mean.
3: Yeah. so, So what came out in the research, there's sort of three things there. One is that that ministry partners are on the same page theologically, which makes intuitive sense. It would be challenging to partner together and not be on the same theological page, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing is that that page is open, if you will, to this idea that men and women are called jointly called to steward God's mission. That goes all the way back to Genesis 1, and it's affirmed again and again throughout the Bible, and that we're called together to to bring God's mission to, to pass on the earth. And so, it's this sort of uh, idea that, that there's the full and equal, I think this is the language I use in the book, the full and equal partnership of women and men in ministry. And then the third piece that came out in the research was that people carry that as a conviction. Mm. That it's not like this intellectual assent or it's, this is a good idea. It's actually, no, this matters and we're going to do something about that. Conviction couples belief with action, I think. And so it's a place of conviction for folks. And when all of that is in place, partnerships are more likely to be places of flourishing. That's
1: great. And that's where I wanted to jump in then about flourishing partnerships, paint a picture for what a church or a ministry looks like uh, when women and men are are partnering in a way that's flourishing, like you're describing.
3: Yeah. So I, I have two sort of metrics for flourishing that I talk about in the book. The first one is that these partnerships are personally satisfying. So imagine a church where, you work alongside someone in a ministry context, of so the opposite gender. And more often than not, you go home at the end of the day thankful, grateful that you get to work with that person, that, they're, that the partnership is a life-giving experience for both of you, that it's a joyful thing to serve together. So there's that aspect of it. But, but then the other piece of it is that it gets the job done, that the partnership mm. is missionally effective. And it's those two elements, personal satisfaction missional effectiveness that I think add up to equal a flourishing ministry partnership between women and men.
2: Mm, That's so fantastic. One of my other questions for you is this. I I do think this concept of equal partnership has been really distorted, unfortunately, in churches. And I wonder, you know, for someone who's not even there, like not even like, oh, maybe it is okay for men and women to lead together and be in ministry together. Where do you even start? Rob, I mean, here you've written a whole book. Like, how do you even begin a conversation?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's a good observation, Aubrey, because we're not great about having those conversations. So maybe I'd start there. I think we mm-hmm. got to push through whatever's awkward. And, and indeed, it will be most likely awkward to say, how is this partnership going? How could it be better? Uh, could it be yeah. more personally satisfying, missionally effective? And do a, just have a sort of a gut check conversation But again, we'll feel awkward, but I think we push through that and we get to a place where we can can have a dialogue, right? And talk about how the partnership is going, what the partnership could become. And then we do that more broadly, right? I think churches can host conversations around men and women working together. Churches can create safe places to explore the scriptures on this topic. Churches can talk about power and how power works. There's lots of talking, I suppose, is where I'd say we start, I think, with some of this stuff. And again, that'll be foreign to us until it 's not right, until we can normalize these conversations, yeah, and so Rob, we, we talked about this in a positive
1: way. What does it look like in a church that that has this and is flourishing uh, let's talk negatively what are the uh, what are the results in a church who either aren't thinking this through or are doing this poorly?
3: well, I think to, uh, sadly, uh, there are listeners who will be able to resonate with the stories of marginalization that I heard when I did my research, particularly from women right so For women who are not able to fully exercise their gifts or to fulfill their calling because of theologies or church structures or ministry paradigms that keep them from being able to do those things. And I think that experience of marginalization is one that too many women carry in the church. And so, um, that's the big negative, I think. The other piece of it for me, Ryan, would be that I think if we can figure out a way to do partnership more effectively we will see God's mission move forward in greater Mm. measure. And that's a motivator for me. I want more people to experience the joy of following Jesus. And I think if we can figure out partnership, equal partnership, we'll see that happen more.
2: Um, let me ask you what what I hope is okay to ask you, Rob. It's a little bit of a sensitive question, but I, you know, I'm a woman in ministry, and I've even had experiences where, like men are afraid to be in the same car as me uh-huh. because I don't know. I might accidentally jump their bones or something. I'm being tongue in cheek, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yes.
4: um,
2: um, I don't even really know what I'm trying to ask, but it this feels hard. Yeah, and, and I guess I'm just wondering. You feel hopeful. You sound hopeful. Have you seen men and women working together in a way that looks beautiful and, and seems like God is blessing it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've experienced that personally for sure in my life and in my ministry life. Um, I think what you're you're pointing to, Aubrey, is I mean, commonly called the Billy Graham rule, which I think has governed me, men and women working together for a long time. In many cases, I think it's the 11th commandment. And Billy Graham's <laughs> practice was. You know, not to be alone with a woman that wasn't his wife. I make the case in the book that we need to be thinking about boundaries in a contextualized way. So, in other words, the partnership that I'm in with you, what makes sense for us, right? What makes sense given our own journeys and where we're at in terms of Mm. our discipleship? What makes sense in terms of the organizational context we're in? And then let's decide together. Again, this would be a conversation that would fall into the category most likely of awkward. But
4: important. We have
3: that conversation and then we we move forward with accountability and support and the things we need to to live up to those boundaries. But it's a contextualized approach. It's not yeah. just what That's worked good. for Billy Graham 75 years ago. Interesting. Uh,
1: Rob, before we let you go, I want to make sure to ask this question. As you said, you've been working with uh, college students for a long time uh, We often read articles or kind of read this like the the next generation's just abandoning the church, right? Like they're just giving up the faith and and we kind of read these doomsday type of things. What do you say to that? What do you see in the college generation right now, especially as it pertains to faith and church and kind of going forward?
3: Well, I think there's a lot of hope here. So for one thing, let's talk about this particular issue of women and men working together. The next generation is very interested in that. Mm. They are... They are intrinsically wired, and I know this from my kids as well as my college students. They are intrinsically wired to partner, to collaborate, to be inclusive. And I think that marries well with what the Bible's message is. So, if we can create a way for for us to translate the Bible's message to this generation, I think we'll find a lot of connection points. And we'll find uh, these college students joining the church in greater measure if they can see that these values that they hold are also found in Scripture. So that's the connection I'm trying to make.
1: Absolutely. Again, Dr. Rob Dixon is Associate Regional Ministry Director with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Also the author of a new book that we've been talking about called Together in Ministry, Women and Men in Flourishing Partnerships. You can learn more about Rob uh, and his book at drrobdixon.com. That's drrobdixon.com or connect with them at Rob F. Dixon. That's at Rob F. Dixon. Rob, it's great to meet you. Thanks for spending time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope For Your Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope For Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. How are you doing today? It's really good to have you with us. Uh, a, a kind of a foundation of this show is that you and I are both pastors. You started with church with your husband called Renewal Church in West Chicago. Uh, I planted a church called uh, Four Corners Community Church that I lead still in uh, kind of Downers Grove, Darien area here. Uh, and so we're both pastors, and that kind of uh, comes out of us often. And uh, we like to talk about the the joys of pastoring. Uh, and, and try to minimize the kind of the struggles. Right. Of it. But Aubrey, let's be honest, there are unique hurts and frustrations and struggles that come with being a pastor. Wouldn't you say that's an accurate? statement?
2: I would say that's accurate and not just anecdotally, but research shows that that's true. Yes, yes absolutely. Absolutely
1: this is not to minimize the struggles of being a teacher or the struggles of being a businessman or a stay-at-home mom or dad whatever else it is uh but but there's some uniqueness how would you do, let's let's just dive in there before we jump into what the answer that i saw in this crossway article is uh, or an answer um Aubrey, what would you say are some of those struggles? And I'll answer that question as well. But what are some of those more unique things that people listening who aren't pastors but are part of churches might not actually know that probably their pastor struggles with?
2: So again, I mean, this is from research. There's a book called Leadership Pain by Samuel Chand, which is specifically about the pain of pastoral leadership, and what he and and he's not the only uh, researcher, academic writer who's looked at this, but that in leadership, especially pastoral leadership, there is something known as the the, sabota- the group of saboteurs, sabotage mm. that happens. And there are people literally within your church that rise up against you. And they do it vocally. They do it by getting other people to start talking about you. It tends to cause a lot of... Um, hurt as leader because they come to you with their criticisms, their dissatisfaction, and some really in extreme cases that leads to church division, church split, it leads to pastors losing their jobs. Um, That's unique to the pastoral ministry. And then I would just say personally, as pastors, you pour your heart out week in, week out. You dream about your church. You pray for your church, blood, sweat, and tears for your church. And a lot of times there are wonderful people who love you and are so excited. And there are lots of people who are frustrated at you constantly. Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm. hear a lot of criticism, a lot of disappointment. And sometimes I think it's because people bring their parent issues and their priest issues and their past Mm -hmm. church hurt to you. Sometimes I think it's just the nature of the role. We're there to live that like cruciform die to self life. Uh, But it it can be hard.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's uh, a public nature and a personal nature to our job uh, that can set you up for pain. You know, whether like you said, it's it's not random people critiquing you or me, uh, but it's people that you care about. And it's not uh, random people leaving your church. It's people that you've most likely spent time with and care about. Right. Uh, And, you know, there's a public nature when you get up to speak on Sunday morning. Uh, but there's also just a kind of putting your heart out there with people and people for, I'm glad that what I'm about to say is the case, but people generally care about their church. Yeah, that's true. And so therefore they've got lots of opinions about it and, and um, expect you to have thought in the same way. And so it could become really difficult. And so Aubrey, uh, when you're at a, um, a particularly say a painful season or a sensitive spot mm. a, as a pastor, uh, why do you keep going? Like what keeps <laughs> you going? What in the past has kind of caused you to go, going to get up, going to write a sermon, going to do this. Like what, what keeps you going?
2: I mean, I think there's a few things. One is just that knowing what Jesus has taken for you and has done for you. And that like the minute we think we have it hard, we have to remember what the Lord of the universe took, and that was a group of people who turned on him to the point of killing him. You know what I mean? Like, then you go, okay, Lord, wow. This is the cross you bore. I can bear people being annoyed with me sometimes. Like, it's okay. I'll do this for your glory. I think the other thing that keeps you going is just a passion and a heart for the Lord, knowing that the Lord loves his church. And ultimately the church is his plan to to rescue the world and to make all things new. And so there's like a passion for that, a belief that the church is still God's plan for hope and renewal and for bringing the gospel to the world that so desperately needs it. And then, you know, then I would say there are those moments where you, you baptize somebody new or or dedicate a baby or do a wedding or, and you go, You do even when you do a funeral and you realize what an honor it is to lead somebody Mm -hmm. in their spiritual formation. I mean, there's you know, although it is a it is a call to come and die, it's a call to like the cruciform life, it you do get moments and glimpses of like, okay, this is this is good. This is a good, good job at the end of the day.
1: Good, good. You you missed the most obvious one. What's is that? What being, the, the large amounts of cash. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> ah, that was uh, clear sarcasm good joke, good for joke, anyone, who is, anyone who has been a part of a church. Uh, but Aubrey, I, I got this uh, article emailed to me actually randomly through Crossway. And you know when you get something from just an organization, you always delete it. Just oh, whatever, whatever, jump yeah, jump uh this one I was like I'm actually going to give that a read and I'm so glad mm. I did simply because of it, it, what it's about it's called it's from the, something they're doing called the Dear Pastor series and so this one was entitled Dear Pastor You Need the Monday Gospel.
2: Oh wow that's true.
1: It's talking specifically about preaching, but also just kind of pastoring in general. It says, "What is the good news for struggling preachers?" The answer: the gospel is true and always for us, especially on Mondays. Here's what I don't think people know, Aubrey: the worst day of being a pastor is often Monday,
2: right? Or Sunday afternoon when church is over.
1: Yes, yeah. because there's that. There's a couple different reasons. I wonder if you if you've got other reasons for that. Uh, there's the adrenaline crash. Yep. So, like, I just preach. I'm this. All right, the adrenaline crash. Uh, but then I think we all preach sermons going that one's going to change the world. <laughs> that one's going to be like, right. you know, they're going to be streaming down the aisles. This right. is going to be our moment. And then. You preach and your church is empty 20 minutes later. Yep.
2: And you're, like, you're like waiting oh, for all the all messages to come pouring in and about how awesome it was.
1: <laughs> or maybe something didn't go right or as yes. you planned. Uh. Uh, it just didn't meet expectations. I, this is the reason most pastors take Monday off because Monday is like a crash yeah.
2: day. Yeah.
1: Uh, not, just, um, not just physically, but emotionally. Absolutely. And, and this author's point is this. Pastor. Uh, preacher, leader, you need to preach the gospel, mm. the same gospel that you're hopefully preaching from the pulpit on Sunday to your people. You need to be preaching to yourself on Monday. Mm. Uh, that is that my, um, you know, my identity, my acceptance is not based on the the great jobs that people give yeah. me after I preach or these other things. Uh, what's it look like for you? Uh, just take that line that he says, you need the Monday gospel. What, what does that do for you?
2: I, you know, it makes me think of a. I have a friend whose dad was a pastor for forty five years, and she asked him the secret once, and he said, "Oh yeah, I quit every Sunday naf- afternoon, and I started again on Tuesday."
4: <laughs> <laughs> I do so think true. there is
2: something about that Monday. I, I think part of it is just okay. Says Lord, I am accepted not because of what I do, not because of the best service ever, not because all the you know slides worked at the right time, or not because of the amount of people that are in there, but because. You have died for me and accepted yeah. me. And I think that's part of it is just the enemy wants to come after you after I think you've poured your heart and your energy out on a Sunday. And so I, I do think thinking of a a Monday as, not, okay, I feel low, but Lord, that lowness, that that sadness crash is going to bring me to you and I'm going to let you speak over me. I, I can see how this is really, really true and and could be really powerful for pastors.
1: And what I would say is, if you're not a pastor out there, you probably need to preach the Monday gospel or the Tuesday and the Tuesday gospel. Like We need to preach the gospel to ourselves.
2: All the time. Yeah.
1: I am not about what I do. I am not about uh, the, God doesn't look at me the way other people do. All those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And ultimately reminding ourselves of the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. And then we can continue on in the goods and the bads. We can keep going. Well, coming up next. We're going to recircle back to the John Gruden Lots story. To talk
2: about.
1: Big step in that one yesterday. We're going to do all of that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're so glad that you're with us today. We talked about this yesterday, but it seems you have... Uh, Big changed overnight. John Gruden, coach of the Raiders, stepped down after more and more of those emails came out. And I, w- I want to play audio. It's about two minutes, but it's his statement and then an explanation of what happened seemingly overnight. Let's go ahead and take a listen to that.
5: Today, I have resigned as head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. I love the Raiders and do not want to be a distraction. Thank you to all the players, coaches, staff, and fans of Raider Nation. I'm sorry. I never meant to hurt anyone. Tom Pellicero and Ian Rappaport back with us now. Tom, I think you said it best a little earlier, that distraction, a little bit of an understatement to say the least. How did we go from the Friday email from the Wall Street Journal to this New York Times being, being released? Walk us through this weekend and what happened with the Raiders. Well, Omar, John Gruden had defended himself publicly and privately surrounding that Wall Street Journal report with the initial email from 2011 in which he used offensive language to describe NFLPA executive director Demora Smith. Gruden said to reporters and others that he does not have a racist bone in his body, and he coached the Raiders in their game against the Bears on Sunday. Then it was around 5 p.m. Pacific time tonight that the New York Times published that new trove of Gruden's private emails to Washington executive at the time, Bruce Allen, among others, in which he used homophobic and misogynistic language, expressed negative thoughts on women in officiating, the drafting of Michael Sam and protests during the national anthem. Within the hour, Gruden had met with Raiders owner Mark Davis, as well as his staff to deliver what is stunning news. He is resigning as the Las Vegas Raiders head coach. It is a swift fall for Gruden who returned to the Raiders back in 2018, moved with the team to Las Vegas. The end result, a 22 and 31 record, no playoff appearances. Tonight, John Gruden resigns in disgrace as the Raiders head coach and Ian, his coaching career likely over at the age of 58.
2: All right. So Brian, I I mean, I think that there's a few questions that this raises, and then I want to talk about what it means for us as Christians. But I think Mm -hmm. one of those questions is, one, these emails came out in 2011, 2012. Why did no one bring them to the table at that point? I think they should have, is what I'm saying. But it seems like, I wonder if this is another situation like Driscoll or, or, you know, some of the other leaders that we've seen where, There was maybe a protective covering around them. Maybe there's a quote unquote boys club around them that allowed these things to continue. My guess is these conversations were happening in email. They were happening in other places in real life as well. I think another question just to layer on top of that is, is it okay that these are now coming out 10 years later? What do you think about all of that?
1: Yeah, I think there's a really somewhat of a simple answer as to why they weren't turned in. I think probably the people he was talking to thought a lot the same way. Mm-hmm. They might not have said it the same way. That's good. You have Brian to remember right. these were these were private emails amongst you know, people that he felt comfortable emailing in this way. And so the only reason they've come out now 10 or 11 years later is because this is part of a bigger investigation, ironically, into the culture of the Washington football team of whom John Gruden has never been a coach, but his brother was a coach for. So that answers the question as to why they're coming out so far back uh, later. But Aubrey, I do think the NFL has to look themselves in the mirror and go, Yep. wait a minute, why didn't some of these influential people say anything? Because yeah. does that just mean that we have a lot of people who think this way? John Gruden's the type of guy, if you listen to reports, who uh, he talks in very brash ways, and he talks this, but I think there's probably something to be said about he wasn't the only one who thought these things. Maybe he was the only one dumb enough to put them in writing, right. or maybe mo- people are going, more is about to come out. We're going to see. But yeah, he deserved to lose his job. Absolutely. But if anyone thinks this is just a John Gruden problem as opposed to a NFL problem or a greater societal mm. problem, they're fooling themselves.
2: Mm, that's a really good point, Brian. So i want to I want to run with that thread that you just started because i I think the question then, okay, if we're gonna we're gonna turn the lens on ourselves, then okay, as Christians, and I think a, a question we have to ask ourselves is about our private conversations mm-hmm. where maybe we vent or maybe we get a little bit looser and whether that's on email or on like a something like Voxer on our text messages or even just in person with people we're very comfortable with. Do you think I mean I know the answer is yes, but do we need to be careful about, the way we speak about people privately whether we're building them up or tearing them down i know for me sometimes in the name of just like venting like i'll be like yep. look i love this person but i'm just venting i'll say some things i want to say and obviously that's not pleasing to the lord obviously right. that's not even smart or wise what do you Correct. think pastorally about this con- this uh question
1: i i get the venting i do it all the time i you know sometimes we can say things that we would like to say aren't gossip but they basically are, uh, but Aubrey, I would just say this, especially in the world we live in now. Uh, don't put anything, don't put anything out there that you wouldn't hear. Let's say it this way: don't do things and then have to apologize for it later and make up the lie that I didn't really mean it. Mm. Right? Like, just be a good person. Just say good things mm. about people. And if you're going to vent, if you're going to do these things. Only say things that you're okay with other people finding out. That's the world we live in right now, right? Email, social media, things never die on the internet. And so all too often, Aubrey, I feel like we're willing to say things in private uh, and then we try to cover it up later. How about we just say things in private? Uh, that are pleasing to the Lord. That are uh, that are that would build other people up, even though they're not hearing it. Maybe mm. that's what we have to think about here. Like John Gruden wouldn't have apologized about this if he hadn't gotten caught. Absolutely. And that's the way we work, but I don't think that's good motivation for the Christ follower. I don't think we could be like, well, you know, I really meant that, but I'm going to say I'm sorry if I'm caught. No, own your words, say what you mean, mean what you say. Mm. Uh, And and I think what you say in private to people and about people says more about your soul than any contrived apology later on. Oh,
2: that's such a good word, Brian. Well, coming up next, we're going to continue this thread and talk about how we can use our social media for good and not for evil. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody, welcome back to the common good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm and we are so thrilled that you're with us today. Brian, this is kind of fun what we're about to do because we often talk about other people's articles especially articles at Christianity Today. But what our listeners may not know is that you and I have begun writing about an article a month for The Better Samaritan, one of the Mm -hmm. blog posts at Christianity Today. And sometimes we take some of the things we talk about here on The Common Good and just transfer it over into an article. And the good folks at Christianity Today, The Better Samaritan, share it for some reason. They like us enough to do that. For (laughs) some (laughs) reason. So uh, how do you feel about if we kind of like a, toot our own whistle here, toot our own horn here and talk through one of our recent articles.
1: I I think that would be a wonderful thing to do because the article was so well written. I mean, it was like life changing <laughs> to
2: like go back and read our own
3: words, <laughs> right?
2: Award winning article. That yes, I wrote yes. Here. Well, um, Brian and I wrote something called "How a Better Samaritan Uses Social Media for Good and Not Evil." Before we went to the break, we were talking about the way we use our our private conversations. This is a conversation about how we use our public conversations, and so uh, Brian. Uh, let me let me read you what we said, and then maybe you can just expand on it a little bit. Basically, what we talked about is how before Twitter existed, the wise King Solomon shared short spi- short bits of ancient wisdom, and we took some of Solomon's proverbs from the Book of Proverbs and we uh, transferred them to today to talk about mm-hmm. our social media usage. And the first point that you and I made is that we need to choose healing. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, "The word of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise bring healing." And we we kind of talked about how we do that on social media. Do you want to expound on that?
1: Uh, yeah, because it could be so easy to uh, to just cut people down or to ruin relationships. Mm-hmm. Right? We ta- we said that the world makes jokes about rage posting, uh, but we need to take our emotions seriously before going on social media. Like Aubrey, if I'm in a if I'm just having a bad day, like if I'm in a bad spot. Uh, I could I could get on social media and go, I want others to have a bad mm-hmm. day and I could do damage to relationships. You know, it could take years to build a relationship and, you know, a couple minutes to destroy That's one. That's so true. And so we don't want to use social media specifically as Christ followers. We don't want to use social media as places where we just tear down, where we just yeah. rip people down. We want to use it as a place to build up, to help bring healing. And if you're really mad, here's a little tip don't post.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That is actually one of the things that we said in the article. Evaluate the state of your emotions. Go for a walk, check in with a friend, say a prayer, read some liturgy, then go online when you have healing in mind. (laughs) All right. Here's the next thing we said, promote kindness. Proverbs 16, 23 through 24 says the hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent and their lips promote instruction. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. All right. What do you want to say about that one?
1: Yeah. Again, it's kind of what we just touched on there. I'm sensing a theme that we went for here. Uh, But if... uh, we wrote this line: If you would not say it to someone over coffee or across a dinner table, it should not be said on social media. There's so much about social media. Here's the deal, Aubrey: it's it's blind, right? It's it's yeah. faceless. Even if I know mm-hmm. the person I'm commenting to or whatever, they're not sitting next to me. And and if I'm not willing, uh, I've gotten into uh, I've stepped into places where I've seen like friends go at it, and I'll like literally be like, seriously, go grab dinner. Like seriously, go out for yes, coffee and yes. have this conversation. So good. Like if, if I have a relationship with you in which uh, it would be normal for us to go and talk and and be together, then why would I do that over social media mm. for the world to see? And so uh, I think it's a great um barometer to say, if I wouldn't say this to you, Aubrey, as we sit across from each other in the studio yeah. uh, or, you know, over coffee or whatever, then why in the world would I say hurtful and hard things yeah. to you? Uh, behind a computer screen. That makes no sense. That's not how friendship, how community is done. But that's how people treat it so often because it's so so easy. It's so easy to do and to be like, oh, watch me. I'm such a tough guy Mm -hmm. even though there's no consequences for it. Uh, So we said this, kind and compassionate words refresh the souls of others and reveal that we have a kind and compassionate God. It really does matter if we are kind online.
2: Absolutely. And I would say something we probably should have said, Brian, but this is just because of the John Gruden story. This came to mind for me. Um, We probably also shouldn't say things on social. Like there are some things we would say in person that we shouldn't say on social media. Do you know what I mean? Like, like if you're willing to open your mouth um, and say bad things about another person, AKA John Gruden, then certainly you should not say that on social media, right? So let's, again, let's go back to our private and public conversations honoring yeah. God. Here's the last thing we said. And I think this is, I mean, you know, again, tooting our own horn. I think this is one of our really good points. We say post,
1: <laughs> <I like that>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> post sparingly. Proverbs seventeen seventeen says the one who has knowledge uses words with restraint. And whoever has understanding is even tempered. Can you expound on that one for us?
1: Yeah, we go on to say in our wonderful point, the most dangerous <laughs> part of online interaction is how easy it is to forget that embodied image bearers are on the other side of every post and comment, and that we can dishonor the image of God and others by how we post. And so, uh, you know, you want to think about what do, if I were to post this, A, what does this say about me? Mm-hmm. But also, what does this say about the other person that I might be posting about yeah. or towards? What does it say about them. And I, I, you know, I'm guessing you wrote this line. Cause I love this line. It says the world does not need more noise. It needs thoughtful, compassionate content. Like don't be one of those people right. who just posts everything all day long and just creates to all the noise out there. If you've got something good to say, feel free to post it. Yeah. Maybe sparingly is, uh, is what we do. And think, think, I guess i the main point here is be intentional and think through what you do online on social media. use it as a place to edify people. use it as a place to build people up to uh to show good about yourself, and ultimately use it as a place to glorify God because we're supposed to do that in all that we do, yeah, that's including good. social media all too often I have like Christians that I know it's like it's like they think when they get on social media they can kind of like take their faith aspect of their life exactly. and kind of put it over here. And then when they turn, you know, when they log off, they put it back on. That's right. not true. Right. That's not true. So post understanding that you're reflecting your savior as you do that.
2: You know, that old there's like that old cliche and I I'm probably going to get it wrong, but it's like if if you were con- would there be any evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh,
2: I I feel like we have to also say and online. Would there be any evidence that could convict you of being a Christian? Like you just mm-hmm. said like let's remember that we are bearing witness to the Lord, and um, we are uh, representing Him when we are online. That's Let me right. just read this last line we wrote over our listeners. Now we tell you to leverage your voice and your platform for the good of others, for the good of others, by choosing words that heal, words that promote kindness, words that speak shalom, justice, and peace over others, and words that are filled with godly wisdom. Mm. Well, hopefully we have more profound things to share with you soon as we keep writing for Christianity today. I thought that was fun and I hope that encourages you. Next up, Brian, we're going to talk about what we can learn from TikTok evangelists. Maybe this will Mm. finally convince you to start a TikTok account with me. We'll see.
1: I don't know. We'll (laughs) find out. (laughs) Okay,
2: we'll find out. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm, and we hope you are enjoying this evening. We're so grateful that you're with us today. Brian, we had a guest on our show a few weeks ago named Heather Thompson Day. She was a fantastic interview. Mm -hmm. She wrote a book called It's Not Your Turn. What to do while you're waiting for your breakthrough. And I just remember she was like a powerhouse.
1: That's right. And
2: I was like, oh, I want to get to know this lady. She is so fantastic. Um, She has a podcast that is promoted on Christianity Today called Viral Jesus And she recently interviewed a TikTok evangelist. Now, before we even talk about this conversation she had with a guy named Kevin Spencer Wilson, I just want to throw that phrase at you. TikTok evangelist. What is it? And what do you think about it?
1: So I I could be the old guy here because I've talked about how I don't really get TikTok very much. Like you watch it and you're like, what is this? (laughs) But here's what we need to understand. Right, Aubrey? We always talk about contextualization. Uh, simply meaning how is it that we preach the gospel and share the gospel yep. in the ways that our culture is kind of set up to hear it well, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think of this next generation, where are they? They're on TikTok. They they're are. on Snapchat. They're yep. on, uh, w- and so we as as uh, older people or churches, mm-hmm. we can fight that and be like, you know, shaking our fist, oh, this TikTok. Right. or. You could say, all right, these people are, these TikTok evangelists are entering into quite the mission field. They're going, where is it that young people are hanging out? Where is it that they are? And then I am going to go enter into those spaces. Uh, and, and you're, you're going to tell the story here of just some of these people who are doing amazing work. So, uh, am I ever going to be a good TikTok evangelist? I would probably have my doubts,
2: right?
1: Whether (laughs) you'll see me there. Uh, but I do think, um, you know, the same way in generations ago where, you know, the first person decided to do evangelism here and probably the generation before mm-hmm. them was like, Oh, what are you doing? Right. I think I think that's what that is like here. And so yeah, we want to cheer them on and we can learn from them what, what contextualization looks like in kind of this online world.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm like you. I won't ever be a TikTok evangelist, but I think this is really cool. I, I'm excited because I keep my sons are on something called Discord, which is like a kind of a chat place for stream or for gamers. And I okay. just met someone recently who has an online church on Discord. And no so that's and yes. And so that's another place where I feel like the next generation is being really really contextualizing the gospel in a way that is beyond what you and I have done or have seen done. And so I think this is actually pretty cool, but here's the story. So Heather Thompson Day sat down with a guy named Kevin Spencer Wilson. He's known online to his followers as cross-cultural Christian. He was born in Sri Lanka. He Hmm. moved to the Sultanate of Oman when he was 12. Over the past 30 years, he has learned to speak three and a half languages. I don't know what that means, three and a half languages. But he's traveled to 13 countries. He currently is a youth pastor in Oceanside, California, which that sounds like a nice place to live. I would be okay living in a place called Oceanside. And he attempts to help his tribe think meaningfully about their lives so they can live lives meaningfully. Now, here's the crazy part, Brian. The guy went on TikTok to really just create these videos about how to make good chai tea. But while he's making chai tea, he talks about Jesus. And in less than two years, his growth has exploded to over 200,000 followers. That's crazy. Is that unbelievable? Yes. So I I want us to listen to a clip of him talking about this journey of being a pastor online. Let's go ahead and take a listen to Kevin Spencer Wilson sharing about his experience.
4: This whole journey for me going being being online and being a pastor and and using something like Chai to to do create content has caused me to just. Revisit uh, theology. Revisit uh, my pictures of who Jesus is. Revisit what he told about how to how to interact with the other, whoever the other is. So, so, so. Let me backtrack a little bit. The, so, the more that I've been able to understand the gospel, the more I see the raw Jesus, at, you know, in action, the way of Jesus. The more I'm convinced that the gospel and the way of Jesus has all. Or oh, if not uh, uh, it has all the all the right materials, the raw materials to kind of construct this amazing worldview in which loving the other and approaching the other is uh, is not only uh, encouraged but becomes inevitable. I begin to see the gospel as this this amazing life operating system that when the mind and the and the heart and, and the actions all that stuff find their place within this life mm. operating system then love for other just becomes this almost direct outflow of, of this thing. And so, so So that really animates whatever I do online. And, and that's kind of been like the North Star when it comes to uh, my scripting stories or anything that I do. That's probably one, one way in which that I've been trying to learn how to navigate um, the the different crowds of people there.
2: So that's him just talking about beginning to see that the gospel is really this kind of amazing, all inclusive thing that can, um, encourage our mental health, our physical health, our spiritual health, our emotional health, and that you can present the gospel in a way that is not condemning, but is really compassionate. Mm -hmm. And somehow that has drawn so many people in. I think this is so fascinating, Brian. Okay. So what, What do you feel like he's doing that's right?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. A, he's going where these, where uh, they're going to be young people, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Gosh, do I sound old? I'm young people. (laughs) Uh, He's going where they are, right? Like um, for better or for worse, uh, high school, uh, college age, just out of college, they're on TikTok. And so he's going where they are and my guess is I'm going to guess on this he's just being himself yeah. like he started by wanting to like teach people how to make what would you say tea
2: chai tea yep
1: and instead now he's just so he's being bold as well mm-hmm. like he could have just talked about tea right? the whole time um but he's clearly connecting on a medium and in a way that's resonating with people. And so I think there's stuff to learn there about what it looks like to share the gospel with people uh, in ways in, in venues where we're comfortable. Uh, and in ways that are honest and authentic.
2: So I think those are some really good points you just made in ways that are comfortable and authentic to us. Because for you and I to go on TikTok and try to do what he's doing, that would not be authentic to us. I've been trying
1: to tell you that. (laughs) I
2: still think we can do dance videos, Brian. Uh, yes. So let's, let's begin to close with this. So for those of us who aren't on TikTok, okay, we're just living our lives, going, you know, doing carpool, going to the grocery store, what have you. What are some ways that we can begin to think about sharing the gospel or maybe contextualizing the gospel where we are? What are some, I don't know, some strategies or some frameworks that we could have in place?
1: Ah, that's really good. I think to ask yourself first, what do you enjoy to do? Like, what does God put in your soul to enjoy doing? And then ask the follow-up question, how can I take that? Uh, and leverage it to make connections with other people who love to do these things and maybe see a doorway opened up to share the gospel. So it could be, you know, you, maybe you like to just walk around the neighborhood. Well, maybe invite someone to walk the neighborhood with you. Maybe it's, you know, I spend a lot of time at baseball games. Maybe that's a venue. Good. Uh, there, there's all sorts of different ways that it, it, you know, it doesn't have to all be street preaching right. and, um, and confrontational. It could be, what has God wired you to like doing? uh and, can you invite other people to come do that to you? I think if we all kind of thought in those terms, we'd start to make some real strides.
2: Yeah, I think that is such a such a good point. What do you like doing? Can you invite people along with you? And can you build enough relationship with the people who are already there that you're able to share the gospel in a really intelligent, kind, compassionate way? I I always think, Brian, about that guy. I know he's been on the show, I think, with you and Ian who started the church at Disney? Because yes. I like going to Disney. So I'm just waiting for God to call me to start preaching the gospel there. And I will make friends with all the cast members. I will ride the rides, and I will tell you about Jesus. So I'm waiting for that. We need call. to
1: have that. We need to have him back on. That was such a random story, but it was unbelievable. His church not only is it targeting cast members at Disney, you can only go to it if you're a cast member oh, at Disney. Man, that's got, all. I gotta, I gotta so, get. Yes. A, I gotta
2: get a job at Disney, and I gotta get to that church. All right. Well, wherever you are, God has planted you on purpose to share His love and compassion. So think maybe today about create creatively how you can do that in a way that's authentic to you thanks so much for joining us today we'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m for brian from i'm aubrey sampson and you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life